This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Gremlins If you've been following the online lives of the two of us here at the Word of the Week, you will probably note that collectively we seem to suffer from a curse of particularly bad luck. Especially where it involves the shipment and delivery of packages, and where it involves anything remotely technological. As we sit down to record this and other podcasts, for example, we frequently find things that we have not touched at all have suddenly had their settings changed. So voices are coming out of the wrong speakers, or microphone gains have been tweaked downwards, or software just isn't working at all. Or, when we are posting episodes of our podcasts to various websites, we will find the computer gives mysterious errors only to start working perfectly the moment we call in a friend who can explain what PHP versions are or why there is a memory allocation failure. And then, of course, there are the times when laptop computers mysteriously catch fire and die, and replacement computers, newly purchased and delivered straight from the factory, fail to turn on when we take them out of the box. We just seem to have a lot of bad luck between us. Or maybe not. Because recently... We were watching one of our favorite B-movies from the 1980s, Steven Spielberg Presents Gremlins, produced by Michael Fennell, directed by Joe Dante, and written by Chris Columbus and... Well, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we digress, let us finish our thought. Recently, we were watching a favorite B-movie from the 1980s, Gremlins, and the protagonist's elderly war veteran neighbor offered an explanation for our tech problems. Gremlins. According to Murray Futterman, played by the great Dick Miller, gremlins were little monsters that foreigners used to sabotage technological and mechanical devices bound for America. The foreign manufacturers, including the Germans and the Japanese, would include gremlins in their packages, and the little saboteurs would proceed to destroy the products in question. This was, of course, a practice started in World War II when American and British airplanes would sometimes end up mysteriously sabotaged by German gremlins. Maybe that's our problem. Maybe we have gremlins. And if we do, we should know all we can about them. And since they've appeared several times in our favorite fantasy games like Dungeons & Dragons, maybe we can all explore the story of gremlins together. At least then we'll know what we're up against. Let's start with the story of the 1984 feature film of the same name, since we've already started talking about it and how it came to be, and why it is often listed as Steven Spielberg Presents Gremlins, even though he didn't write it, direct it, or produce it. And let's also talk about why it's incorrect to call it a B-movie, and why we don't care, because no one uses the term B-movie properly anymore. That's because B-movies don't exist. These days, the term B-movie generally refers to a low-quality movie, and usually a low-quality genre film. Cheesy science fiction, garbage horror, cheap suspense, that kind of thing. The actual genre isn't important. What is important is that the film is just low-quality in some way. The special effects may be lacking, the dialogue may be cheesy, the acting may be subpar, it doesn't matter. B-movie means low-grade but it doesn't mean bad. But that's not what it always meant, and in fact, B-movie doesn't mean anything anymore. 
To understand what B-movie originally meant, we have to go back a long, long time, back to the 1930s and 40s. During that period, it was common for movie theaters to show double features. That is, you'd go to the theater and see two films. In addition, you'd also see cartoons, newsreels, and short films before and between the two movies. Now, one of the two movies you'd see was a nice full-length feature film, usually a dramatic film. And the other movie would generally be a shorter movie, usually a genre picture. They were called the A movie and the B movie. You see where this is going? At the time, movie studios would devote most of their resources, budget, actors, directors, and so on, to their A movies. Those were the big draws. The B movies would generally get less of everything, including smaller budgets, which is why people think the term B movie refers to a budget movie. There were even some movie studios that specialized in producing smaller, cheaper B-movies located in an area of Hollywood known as Poverty Row because they were small, budget studios. Now we have to note that B-movies didn't have the negative connotations they do today. In fact, B-movies were often written and directed by talented filmmakers who were able to produce very good movies despite the smaller budgets and shorter deadlines. And throughout the years, occasionally, a well-made B-movie would outshine its A-movie counterparts. And so the B-movie evolved over time. As noted, they tended to be genre films. And as interest moved from westerns to science fiction to horror and exploitation and so on, the B-movies followed. So decade by decade, the types of B-movies changed to keep pace with popular culture. But then, the B-movie went into decline. Now, that's a long story in itself, but essentially it started in the 1950s when the federal government of the United States forced the movie theater chains to separate from the movie production studios because of various monopolistic practices. The changes to the business landscape meant that double features became less common and movies became more expensive to run. And in the 1950s, as television caught on, people were suddenly able to watch the same classic Western adventures that they might get in B-movies of the time, or later science fiction. And so the double feature became even less relevant. There was a brief resurgence in B-movies in the 1970s that coincided with the rise of horror and exploitation films. But by the 1980s, the B-movie houses had pretty much collapsed. At the same time, the genre film had gained top billing. In the 1970s, disaster films like Airport, The Poseidon Adventure, and The Towering Inferno paved the way for big blockbuster movies. And then came the big three, Jaws, Star Wars, and Superman. And suddenly, the summer blockbuster movie, the high-concept genre film full of spectacle, that became a thing. And suddenly... Movies that would have been B-movies before the 1970s were just, well, just movies. And B-movie became a sort of vague term for a movie that would have been a B-movie once upon a time. Like Gremlins, released in 1984 by Amblin Entertainment, Gremlins tells the story of a young loser named Billy Peltzer who receives a strange animal from his quirky inventor father as a Christmas gift. The animal, purchased from a standard mysterious Chinese old man in a junk shop, is called a mogwai. And it comes with three rules. Don't get it wet, don't expose it to bright light, and don't let it eat after midnight. Naturally, all three rules get broken pretty quickly, and the cute little pet named Gizmo 
spawns a bunch of siblings that mutate into horrible reptilian monsters that proceed to rampage through the town of Kingston Falls. While they do hurt and kill a lot of people, the creatures seem less evil in intent and more like they simply delight in causing utter chaos. And their antics are as darkly hilarious as they are deadly. The film has a very unique tone that is a blend of serious horror and quirky comedy. And this blend was enjoying a bit of popularity at the time. Gremlins released the same weekend as Ghostbusters, for example. Another mix of supernatural horror and comedy. Now, Chris Columbus, whose credits these days include a lot of hit movies like Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, was a nobody at the time. While he was trying to break into filmmaking, he was also working a lot of hours at a factory job to make ends meet. And he was pretty sure he was going to be stuck there forever. Until one of his teachers happened upon a script that he, Columbus, had been writing on his breaks at the factory job, and took it upon himself to send it to an agent. The agent agreed to work with Columbus based on the quality of the short 20-page screenplay, so Columbus went on to write some spec scripts. A spec script is a script that a screenwriter writes basically for exposure. It's a screenplay that isn't intended to ever get made into a movie. Instead, it's just something you can send to producers to show you have talent and know how to write a script. If a producer likes your spec script, they will usually ask you to write a treatment for a particular film project they're working on. Well... Columbus wrote a spec script about a group of demonic little monsters that would come out at night and terrorize a town. It was supposedly based on an experience he'd had living in a crappy loft apartment where, at night, he would lay awake and listen to the sounds of rats and mice skittering in the walls and across the floor. The script was a mix of comedy and horror elements, and it ended up on the desk of one Steven Spielberg at his production house, Amblin Entertainment and he described it as the most unique script he had ever seen. And so not only did he decide to hire Columbus, he decided he would help get Gremlins made. He brought in Michael Fennell to produce the film and Joe Dante to direct, and the rest is... Okay, enough about film history. Let's talk Gremlins. In the movie, they're just destructive little monsters. But there must be more to it than that, right? What's all the stuff about World War II pilots and sabotage? And wasn't there a gremlin that destroyed a plane in some old sci-fi and horror TV show? Or a Bugs Bunny cartoon? And if gremlins do exist in D&D, they must have a mythological component, right? So what gives? Well, yes, there was a gremlin in the old World War II era cartoon Falling Hair starring Bugs Bunny. And yes, that something out there on the wing... In the famous Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring William Shatner, was a gremlin. And so was that one that John Lithgow saw years later in the remake of the episode for Twilight Zone the movie. But no, they don't have a mythological component. At least not the kind you're thinking of. Unless you consider a 75-year-old military in-joke to be mythology. See, while the movie doesn't actually depict the legendary gremlins properly... The explanation Mr. Futterman offers does get it right. While air combat had taken place during World War I, it was still pretty new technology. It wasn't really until World War II that air power played a significant role in warfare. And boy, did it ever play a significant role in World War II. Strategic bombing became a major tool for the Allied powers against Germany in Europe, as Germany came to appreciate the power of an air force and also turned to strategic bombing, the Allies also developed inter-air combat forces that could dominate the skies. 
and both sides invested a great deal in developing anti-aircraft weapons and technology. And Japan and the United States relied heavily on air forces stationed on newly developed aircraft carriers to bring their war across the vast stretches of the Pacific Ocean. In short, airplanes were in. But in the period after World War I and going into World War II, airplanes, being pretty new technology, were prone to all sorts of problems. Technological and mechanical failures and, of course, human error. And the technology was advancing fast. It was just a couple of decades that saw the move from propeller-driven biplanes to turbojet-powered combat aircraft. And so, problems were inevitable. To keep their spirits up, the pilots would try to laugh off such problems as the results of mysterious supernatural creatures. And they called those creatures gremlins. Gremlins were tiny, nasty little saboteurs. They would loosen hoses and screws, pull out wires and fuses, bend brackets, remove bolts, that kind of thing. They were experts. They had an intimate knowledge of airplane mechanics, and they would use that knowledge to cause tiny bits of unnoticeable damage that would inevitably cause major problems. At least, that's what the pilots of the British Royal Air Force claimed. In the early days of World War II, they blamed the gremlins on the Germans. But it soon became clear that the Germans were having their own technological problems, and soon it became common knowledge that gremlins were apolitical. They took no sides. They simply destroyed technology, wherever it was. Now, it's hard to say exactly when the first gremlin was blamed for the first aircraft problem. We know that gremlins became known to the wider culture after children's author Roald Dahl, yes, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory guy, published a picture book about them called The Gremlins in 1943. See, Dahl had served in the RAF in the Middle East and North Africa and had been in an accidental crash landing in the desert in 1942, no doubt caused by gremlins. So he was intimately familiar with the little menaces. Interestingly enough... Dahl also tried to get a film made about them. He had sent his manuscript for the book to the Disney Company in 1942. At first, Disney wanted to make a live-action film based on the story. Then they decided an animated film would be better. But when Dahl had the book published by Random House, he created a copyright issue that couldn't be resolved, and the film was eventually cancelled. Still, it was that book that earned him his renown as a writer. But Dahl wasn't the first to write about them. In fact, we know that the Gremlin stories actually go back to before World War II, maybe even to World War I. Aviator Pauline Gower wrote about Gremlins in her 1938 novel The ATA, Women with Wings, and specifically described Scotland as being particularly lousy with Gremlins. And a poem that appeared in a 1929 issue of the journal Aeroplane mentioned them. That was published in Malta, by the way. And that's about as far back as we can trace it, at least in print. The story probably goes back to at least the early 1920s and seems to have been particularly popular in Malta, the Middle East, and in India. Now, that explains what gremlins are, but where did the name come from? Surely the RAF pilots must have co-opted the name from somewhere, some ancient Germanic goblin or Celtic fairy or Norse troll or something, right? Well, here's the thing. Nobody quite knows where the name comes from. There isn't any sort of spirit anyone has been able to track down that might have contributed to the name. 
There's an old German word that sounds like gremlin. Grimian means to torment or confuse. But there's another theory about the origin of the term, and it has an ugly suggestion as to the source of some of the problems which were blamed on gremlins. The theory is that gremlins came out of bottles of beer. Let's take a brief moment to note that gremlins have appeared in Dungeons and Dragons. It's related to the beer thing, we promise. Now, gremlins eventually found their way into the core monstrous manual for the revised reprints of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2nd Edition. And before that, they appeared in a supplement to AD&D 2nd Edition called the Greyhawk Monstrous Compendium. That supplement was published in 1990, and it describes gremlins as chaotic, mischievous creatures who haunt buildings, terrorizing the inhabitants, breaking everything, and refusing to leave until the place is no more fun. That is to say, until everything is ruined and the inhabitants have all fled. Or died. And it's pretty clear from the description that these are the Chris Columbus gremlins based on the popular movie from a half decade prior. But there is also another variety of gremlin. A friendly variety. And it's called a fremlin. Interestingly, fremlins have been part of D&D for longer. Fremlins first appeared in the 1984 Advanced Dungeons & Dragons module called The Lost Island of Castanamir. It was a competition module. It was used for tournaments and events. And it sent a group of hapless player characters to a powerful wizard's secret laboratory. The wizard was presumed dead, or mad. And the Council of Wizards wanted to know precisely what craziness Castanamir had been up to. Ultimately, the PCs would have to confront the wizard's servants as well as strange creatures the wizard had created, known, collectively, as the Gingwatsim. But the house also hosted a number of other comical creatures like leprechauns and fremlins. The latter were specifically noted as a sort of gremlin. Why do we bring this up now? Because of the name fremlin. See, the friendly gremlins of D&D aren't the only thing to bear the name Fremlin that is related to Gremlin's stories. There's also Fremlin's Beer. Seriously. Fremlin's Brewery was a famous brewery in Maidstone, Kent, England, and it was established in 1861 by a man who hated bars. Yes, you heard us right. See, Ralph Fremlin was a very devoutly religious Christian, and in the 1860s, he eschewed himself of public houses. That's what pub is short for, by the way. And by the 17th century in England, the public house, the pub, had become the very center of community life in Britain, as well as many other places. Sure, their tradition goes back far longer, and we'll talk about that someday. But for today, understand that in the Victorian era, pub culture was a very significant thing. But Fremlin didn't like that sort of debauchery. He had nothing against beer, good heavens no. Just drinking it in public places, and drinking it to excess. So he founded Fremlin's Brewery, and he focused on something very few breweries were doing at the time. He focused on putting beer in bottles, so that it could be drunk at home, in moderation. He even started a home beer delivery service. Well, Fremlin's bottled beers did very well, despite refusing to sell to pubs. And because of the portability of his bottled beer, companies that did business in far-off ports became interested in working with Fremlin's. 
That included the East India Company. In fact, Fremlins adopted the elephant for their logo as a result of their work with the East India Company. You know who else has a use for individual portions of beer bottled for easy portability? Soldiers. Soldiers stationed in foreign nations like India, and the Middle East, and Malta. You see where this is going? Yes, throughout World War I and World War II, Fremlin's Brewery, which had become the largest brewery in Kent, bought up many smaller breweries and, after Ralph Fremlin's passing decided to start selling to pubs, Fremlin's Brewery supplied a lot of beer to the British Royal Air Force and to places where the RAF was stationed. And one theory suggests that the word Gremlin was actually based on the name Fremlin's. We are not suggesting at all that any of the strange accidents or errors that RAF pilots suffered was due to alcohol consumption. Please don't take it that way. And we've not found any evidence that those who suggest the etymological relationship between Gremlins and Fremlins beer were even suggesting that. The story specifically goes that the Gremlins were demons that came out of the beer bottle. So take that for what it is. Meanwhile, we're pretty happy to have something to blame for all our technological woes. As the voiceover in the closing credits of Gremlins suggests, the next time our microphone goes on the blink, or our podcast fails to upload, or our computer starts to spark and smoke, before we call a repairman, we'll turn on all the lights, check all the closets, and look under all the beds, because we're pretty sure of Gremlins. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 